The Army of the Potomac was probably at its nadir after the twin debacles of Fredericksburg and the Mud March, an offensive operation that was aborted due to logistical problems, namely the wet weather that made Virginia roads so muddy that they became impossible to traverse. In late January 1863, Major General Ambrose Burnside offered his resignation to the Lincoln administration, and it was quickly accepted. In addition to the humiliating loss that the Union had suffered at Fredericksburg, the Army itself was in poor shape. It was in bad need of reorganization. Though technically better supplied than the rebels, poor and sometimes corrupt management systems made it so that the soldiers were often malnourished. Meat was of bad quality and rancid. Vegetables weren't fresh. Tens of thousands of soldiers suffered from diseases like scurvy, smallpox, and our good old friend Dysentery. In addition, the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed all enslaved people in Confederate territory, was controversial amongst the rank and file, to say the least. Most of the soldiers in the army had joined out of a sense of patriotic duty to preserve the Union, but the nature of the war was changing. The Civil War was becoming a war of liberation. In order to break the back of the Confederacy, slavery had to be broken as well. Not all Union soldiers were quick to get on board, though attitudes slowly changed over the course of the next few years. At least at this moment, it was not a popular decision. President Lincoln, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck were in desperate need of a new general that could take command of the army, whip it into shape, and crush Lee's army. They settled on Major General Joseph Hooker. Joseph Hooker was born in Massachusetts in 1814. He attended West Point where he graduated 29th of 50 in the class of 1837 and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the artillery. He fought in the Second Seminole War and in the Mexican War, serving on the staffs of both General Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott. For his actions in that conflict, he was given brevet promotions to lieutenant colonel. He also developed a reputation as a ladies' man, and perhaps unfairly as a hard drinker. It's also a popular myth that the term hooker, meaning prostitute, originates from his name during the Civil War years. Perhaps it's because cavalry captain Charles F. Adams Jr. described Hooker's camp headquarters as both a quote, barroom and brothel, unquote. But again, it's just a myth. When war broke out in 1861, he was initially denied a commission, but after the Battle of Bull Run, was promoted to brigadier general and given command of a brigade. Quickly, he was promoted to division command, and it was just after the Battle of Williamsburg on May 5, 1862, that Hooker was given the nickname Fighting Joe. The moniker was accidental, and came from a newspaper headline that was supposed to read, quote, Fighting, dash, Joe Hooker attacks rebels, unquote, but was printed without the dash, and the nickname, much to Hooker's chagrin, stuck. After he was given command of the army, Lee mockingly referred to him in correspondence as Mr. F.J. Hooker. After the Peninsula Campaign, Hooker commanded the 1st Corps at 2nd Manassas and Antietam. When Burnside took command after the fall of McClellan, he reorganized the army into three Grand Divisions. Each Grand Division consisted of two corps. Hooker was given command of the Center Grand Division and led it into action at Fredericksburg where his troops suffered heavily during assaults against Confederate defenses. Criticism from Washington, as well as within the Army of the Potomac, grew over the course of the winter. Burnside's attempted second campaign stalled out in the muck, and the cries for his removal just got louder. One particularly dissentious voice from within the Army was none other than Joseph Hooker. Never a fan of Burnside, he made his complaints known to the President and basically anyone else who would listen. Burnside finally gave President Lincoln an ultimatum. The old tomato. Court-martial the insubordinate officers, or he would resign. Lincoln chose the latter offer and replaced him with Fighting Joe. Right before Burnside was removed from command, Hooker controversially was quoted by a New York Times Army correspondent as saying that, quote, nothing would go right until we had a dictator, and the sooner the better, unquote. In response to Hooker, Lincoln wrote him a letter which in part said, quote, I have heard in such a way as to believe it of your recently saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain success can set up dictators. What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship, unquote. Hooker did boast that he was going to be successful. Quote, My plans are perfect. And when I start to carry them out, may God have mercy on Bobby Lee, for I shall have none. Unquote. Hooker ultimately was chosen as commander for a combination of reasons. He put his name out there and was confident enough to garner support. He was high on the list of seniority within the Army, Grand Division Commander, and he was acceptable politically speaking. 
Hooker himself was a pre-war Democrat, which was common within the high command of the army, but notably he had not been a partisan of former army commander General George B. McClellan. McClellan was still very popular within the ranks of the army despite his poor handling in combat against Lee on the peninsula and the Maryland campaign. But the Lincoln administration and the radical Republicans wanted to root out vestiges of McClellanism in the Army of the Potomac. Hooker had been critical of Little Mac, which endeared him to the Republicans. Hooker quickly went about reorganizing the Army, getting it into fighting shape again. He got rid of the Grand Divisions and went back to the Corps system. The cavalry, which had been distributed loosely amongst the Army, was now consolidated into one Corps, with three divisions and a reserve brigade. We'll talk a little bit more about that on the next episode. Supply issues were fixed so soldiers were able to receive fresh meat and vegetables. At the suggestion of his chief of staff, General Dan Butterfield, a new badge identification system was implemented to improve morale and build unit cohesion. Every corps was given a unique insignia, and each division would wear a different color. For example, the symbol of the second corps was the trefoil, or a three-leaf clover. The first division wore a red trefoil, the second was blue, and the third was white. Hooker also changed the way the army handled furloughs to allow more soldiers to go home and visit family, and to encourage deserters to return to the army, he declared a blanket amnesty to soldiers who reported by a certain date. Within a couple of months, the army was in much better physical and mental shape. Hooker was under pressure to take the offensive against Lee. For one, he had bragged that he would do it, and was expected to follow through. More importantly, the army was about to lose a significant portion of its strength. When the war began, new recruits signed enlistment contracts of varying lengths. Some were as short as one month, and a few unlucky ones signed on for the duration of the war. But a large portion signed two-year contracts that in the spring of 1863 were set to expire. If he didn't strike the Army of Northern Virginia soon, thousands of veteran soldiers would leave, and then the numerical advantage the Federals had would disappear, at least in the short term. It was a use-it-or-lose-it situation for Hooker. This resulted in the Chancellorsville Campaign. The army crossed the Rappahannock River into a densely wooded area west of Fredericksburg called the Wilderness, eventually concentrating around Chancellorsville. Lee moved his army to check Hooker's advance, and then inexplicably, Hooker ceded the initiative to Lee. The Confederates divided their forces and, led by Jackson, smashed into the undefended flank of the Federal Army. The Union 11th Corps was sent reeling, and over the next few days, the Confederates attacked again and again. Hooker completely lost his nerve, it's possible he was suffering from some traumatic head injury, and ordered his army to retreat despite the protests from his corps commanders. My God, my God, what will the country say? said Lincoln after the battle. The president arrived at Falmouth, Virginia, the federal base of operations on the north side of the Rappahannock River, on May 6, 1863, the day the Army of the Potomac made its withdrawal. Despite what seemed like a devastating loss, the army was still intact, and its fighting spirit, though low, was not broken. However, officers and soldiers alike were thoroughly disgusted with Hooker's performance. In a letter to his father, then-Colonel, soon-to-be General Alexander S. Webb, wrote that some of the generals were, quote, contemptible blocks with stars on their shoulders who in moments of trial have asked me what to do, how to do it, and look like sheep when they ought to show character. This is known to all, and yet you see no improvement in the appointments, unquote. Colonel Lucius Fairchild wrote to his sister that, quote, Many generals under whom I may chance to be thrown, political generals who are perfect failures, generals who are drunkards, generals who are not fit for the places they hold, I get a big disgust on. When I see the reputation of a good regiment resting on the reports of a popinjay staff officers who would not make first-class corporals, then I get mad as the devil and swear some, unquote. And uh, that's saying a lot for the mid-19th century. Lincoln hoped to suss out whether or not Hooker needed to be replaced. The consensus amongst his corps commanders was that he needed to go, but there was no obvious replacement. And before we delve deeper into the controversy, let's talk about some of the major players. Similar to the Army of Northern Virginia, the Army of the Potomac would go through some reorganization after Chancellorsville. The Army currently had seven infantry corps, which were the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 5th, 6th, 11th, and 12th. The 1st was commanded by the highly regarded Major General John F. Reynolds. Reynolds was a Pennsylvanian, West Point graduate of 1841, and Mexican war veteran. He had been in command of the First Corps since the Battle of Fredericksburg. Previously, he led the famous Pennsylvania Reserves Division, but was promoted when Hooker was named Grand Division Commander. Troops of his corps achieved some of the only success the Federals saw at Fredericksburg, but Reynolds failed to coordinate the attacks properly, and reinforcements were not sent in. 
At Chancellorsville, the first corps saw little action. When Hooker held a council of war, Reynolds was one of the votes in favor of retaking the offensive, but was overruled by Hooker. Since then, Reynolds had lost all confidence in the commanding general and sought to have him removed. Reynolds likely talked to Lincoln during his visit to Falmouth, and it was pretty widely known within the army that he was on a short list to replace Hooker. He and 5th Corps Commander General George Meade also met with Pennsylvania Governor Andrew Curtin, who made his dissatisfaction with Hooker known and hoped either Reynolds or Meade would take command of the army. But at least in the immediate aftermath of the battle, there would be no major changes. Three divisions made up Reynolds' corps, the first led by Brigadier General James S. Wadsworth, the second by Brigadier General John C. Robinson, and the third led by Major General Abner Doubleday, the fabled inventor of the game of baseball. The troops of the 1st Corps were some of the most experienced and hardest fighting in the entire army. Perhaps the most famous were the men of the 1st Brigade of the 1st Division, the previously mentioned Iron Brigade. It was made up of Westerners, mostly men from Wisconsin, but also Michigan and Indiana. They received their nickname at the Battle of South Mountain for their tenacity, but were also called the Black Hats, because unlike most soldiers in the Army of the Potomac in 1863, they did not wear forage caps, but instead the Hardee-style dress hat. During the Battle of Chancellorsville, the 2nd Corps was led by the most senior of Hooker's Corps commanders, Major General Darius Nash Couch. Couch grew up in Putnam County, New York, and was a West Point graduate of the famed class of 1846, which also included George McClellan, Stonewall Jackson, and George Pickett, amongst others. He fought in the Mexican War and the Seminole War, and stayed in the Army until the mid-1850s. At the outbreak of the war, he was initially given command of an in infantry regiment, and then quickly was promoted to brigade command. Couch offered his resignation to General McClellan during the spring of 1862, citing poor health, but the resignation was rejected and instead was promoted to Major General. Imagine if you tried to call out sick one day and they're like, no, come in anyways, we're just going to promote you. He was assigned command of the 2nd Corps during the Fredericksburg campaign and led it there and at Chancellorsville. When Hooker was incapacitated from an artillery shell that struck a pillar that he was leaning against during the battle, Couch was temporarily given command of the army. When Hooker came to, after about an hour, Couch was one of the generals advocating for an attack against Lee's smaller army, which never came. While President Lincoln was in Falmouth, he made it clear that Hooker was a disgraceful commander and he wouldn't serve under him any longer. Lincoln offered General Couch command of the army, but he declined, again citing poor health. And when it became apparent that Lincoln was not going to immediately replace Hooker, Couch left the Army of the Potomac and took an easier job as commander of the Department of the Susquehanna in Pennsylvania, where he would be only in charge of state militia and probably wouldn't see any action. The 2nd Corps needed a replacement, and they promoted one of the most talented division commanders in the Army, Major General Winfield Scott Hancock. Hancock was a Pennsylvanian and a Democrat. He graduated from West Point in the class of 1844, but nearly missed the Mexican War because he spent the early part of that conflict as a recruitment officer. He eventually made it to Mexico, where he served in the Army of his namesake, General Winfield Scott. After Mexico, he served as a quartermaster in the Third Seminole War. And I mentioned the Seminole War uh, at least once before, uh, and as the name suggests, it was one of a series of wars that were fought uh, from like the 1820s all the way up until the late 1850s against the Seminole Indians in Florida. And they fought a guerrilla war for decades against the U.S. Army. After the Seminole War, he was stationed at Fort Leavenworth during the partisan conflict known as Bleeding Kansas, which we talked about in the John Brown episode, and arrived at the tail end of the Utah-Mormon War. When the Civil War broke out, he was in California, where he had been stationed for two years. During that time, he grew close with another Army officer, Captain Lewis Armistead. When Virginia seceded from the Union, Armistead left California and the Army to join the Confederate forces. But before he left, he emotionally told Hancock, quote, Goodbye. You can never know what this has cost me, unquote. In the spring of 1863, Armistead commanded a brigade in Pickett's division of Longstreet's Corps. Hancock went east in 1861, and was initially made a quartermaster, but soon afterward was given command of an infantry brigade. It was during the Peninsula Campaign that Hancock made himself known to the public. At the Battle of Williamsburg, Hancock led a counterattack against the rebels that nearly won the day, if only it had been properly supported. Nonetheless, General McClellan, in a telegraph to Washington, wrote that, quote, Hancock was superb today, unquote, and thus, Hancock the Superb was born. He continued to lead his brigade through the summer of 1862 until he was promoted to division command during the Antietam campaign. His division had the unfortunate task of attacking Confederate defenses at Marie's Heights at Fredericksburg. At Chancellorsville, his division covered the rear guard during the Federal withdrawal on May 6th. 
Now, with Couch gone, he was seen as a clear choice for Corps Command. Hancock was so well regarded that it's alleged that he was on a short list for Commander of the Army. In a letter to his wife, Elmira, Hancock wrote, quote, I have been approached again in connection with the Command of the Army of the Potomac. Give yourself no uneasiness. Under no conditions would I accept command. I do not belong to that class of generals whom the Republicans care to bolster up. I should be sacrificed." Unquote. It's unlikely that he was ever given a hard offer by the War Department or Lincoln, but was at least considered to be in the running. His political connections, a staunch Democrat, and his inexperience likely disqualified him from serious consideration. Like the First Corps, the Second Corps was highly regarded for its fighting ability. It had many notable veteran brigades, including the Philadelphia Brigade, the Gibraltar Brigade, and the famous Irish Brigade, then led by Colonel Patrick Kelly. With Hancock now in command of the Second Corps, his old division was given to Brigadier General John C. Caldwell. The Second Division stayed in the hands of former Iron Brigade Commander Brigadier General John Gibbon. And the Third Division had also had a vacancy as its commander, General William French, was transferred to command of the garrison at Harpers Ferry. The spot was filled by Brigadier General Alexander Hayes. Next was the Third Corps, which was led by the only non-West Pointer at the Corps level, Major General Daniel Sickles. Sickles is interesting enough to deserve a podcast episode of his own, but I'll try to keep it short here. He was born in 1819, though sometimes it was claimed it was 1825, in New York City. He followed in the footsteps of his father by first becoming a lawyer and later diving into the world of politics as a Democrat in New York. He was associated with the political machine of the democracy, Tammany Hall. He held some minor political appointments in the 1850s before being elected to the New York State Senate and eventually to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1857. Subtracting Sickles' Civil War service, he'd still be widely remembered today for an infamous event that occurred in 1859. A few years prior, Sickles had married Teresa Baggioli, who was only 16 and almost exactly half the age of Devil Dan. During their marriage, he accused her multiple times of carrying on extramarital affairs, which she repeatedly denied. Sickles himself was a notorious womanizer, and when he was sent to London as a diplomatic official, brought with him Fanny White, a well-known prostitute, instead of his pregnant wife. In 1858, Teresa began an affair with Philip Barton Key II. Key was notable in a few ways. He was the son of the Star-Spangled Banner author Francis Scott Key, and he was at the time the district attorney of Washington, D.C., and was said to be the most handsome man in the district. Sickles became aware of the romance in 1859 and confronted Teresa, who initially denied the affair but later confessed on paper. On February 27, 1859, Dan Sickles spotted Philip Barton Key sitting on a bench in Lafayette Square and confronted him by saying, quote, Key, you scoundrel, you have dishonored my home, you must die, unquote, and shot the unarmed Key dead. The entire affair became one of the biggest public scandals of the 19th century. Sickles eventually turned himself in and was arrested, but despite murdering a famous public official, the public largely sided with him. Mostly due to the social mores of the Victorian age, many believed Sickles to be in the right. He was being cucked and was entitled to revenge. The proceedings that followed became the trial of the century. Sickles hired a talented group of attorneys that would rival O.J. Simpson's dream team. Remember these words. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit and included, quote, one of the most brilliant of all the members of the New York Bar, unquote, which was James T. Brady, and Edwin M. Stanton, who in 1863 was the Secretary of War in the Lincoln administration. The defense characterized the murder of Key as a crime of passion, and Sickles used a new courtroom tactic, a plea of temporary insanity. Sickles was eventually acquitted and was scorned by the public not for the murder or his escaping conviction, but because he forgave his adulterous wife, Teresa. During all of this, Sickles never gave up his seat in Congress and served until 1861. Before the war, he did have some limited military experience. Like many prominent public figures in the antebellum era, he received a commission as an officer in a militia regiment. It was largely a ceremonial position, just something to do for wealthy men with martial ambitions. Though, he did wear his major's uniform during important ceremonies and events. In the spring of 1861, hoping to repair his reputation, he raised four infantry regiments and was appointed the commander of one. Shortly after the regiments were organized into a brigade, Sickles was assigned command of it. As a brigade consisted of New York regiments, it became known as the Excelsior Brigade. Sickles became the epitome of the political general, someone who was given a commission solely because of his political connections. He was a member of the democracy, and the Republican administration believed bipartisan support was needed to execute the war effort. Bipartisan support was real dumb back then, too. He missed most of the action in 1861 and 1862, but did serve well as a brigade commander during the Peninsula Campaign. 
In the summer of 1862, he was given command of a division, but didn't lead it into combat until the Battle of Fredericksburg. When the 3rd Corps commander, George Stoneman, was transferred into the newly organized Cavalry Corps, it was Sickles who became the unlikely replacement. It hoped that he had a close relationship with the new Army commander, Joseph Hooker. While leading the 3rd Corps at Chancellorsville, he apparently spotted Stonewall Jackson's corps marching on May 2nd and believed it to be retreating. Instead, it was moving into position to attack the Union right flank. After Chancellorsville, Sickles was the only notable supporter that Hooker still had within the high ranks of the army, having alienated most of the others. After the battle, the 3rd Corps was reorganized from three divisions down to two. The first was commanded by Major General David Burney. another lawyer and politician turned officer. The second was led by Brigadier General Andrew Humphreys, a West Pointer and professional soldier. Aside from the Excelsior Brigade, the 3rd Corps was also notable for two regiments of elite soldiers and marksmen, the 1st and 2nd United States Sharpshooters, led by Colonel Hiram Burdan. Next was the 5th Corps, led by yet another Pennsylvania Democrat, Major General George Gordon Meade. Meade was born in 1815 in Spain, the son of an American merchant, Richard Meade, who had moved to Cadiz in the early 19th century. The elder Meade's business thrived, and for a decade he served as the U.S. naval agent in Spain, but his undoing was the Peninsular War. He backed the Spanish crown during the French invasion with supplies to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. When the war was finished, he was unable to get repaid for the loans, and he petitioned the Spanish government for the money, but was rebuffed. He wrote pamphlets detailing how he was being swindled, which led to the Spanish fining and imprisoning him. It was only after diplomatic pressure from the United States that he was released from prison. With his business in ruins, he returned to his family, who had settled in Philadelphia in 1817. Richard Meade died in 1828, still lobbying the government to repay the debt owed to him by the Spanish. The Meade family continued to do this into the 20th century. As the family had lost most of its wealth, the Meade boys were encouraged to enter military service. Because of the family's social standing and political connections, Meade was able to receive an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy. He graduated from West Point in 1835, 19th out of 56. He became an artillery officer and served in the Second Seminole War. He resigned from the Army and entered private life for a few years, getting married in 1840 and then returning to the Army as an engineer in 1842. During the Mexican War, he served as a staff officer for several generals, including Zachary Taylor. He continued his army service after the war, mostly overseeing repairs to lighthouses and later conducting surveys of the Great Lakes. In the early days of the Civil War, Meade was commissioned a brigadier general and given command of a brigade in the Pennsylvania Reserves. For most of 1861, his brigade was stationed at the Capitol, but they were transferred to the Army of the Potomac for the Peninsula Campaign. Meade served well in the Seven Days Battles until he was wounded at the Battle of Glendale, shot three times. He recovered in time for the Second Battle of Bull Run, where his brigade made a determined defensive stand on Henry House Hill during the Federal Retreat. The following month, he was promoted to division command during the Antietam campaign. It was after the Battle of South Mountain that Joseph Hooker, Meade's then commander, singled Meade and his troops out for special commendation. The only marked success the Federals achieved at Fredericksburg was when the troops from Meade's division broke through Jackson's defenses on the Confederate right wing, though his commander, General Reynolds, failed to exploit the gap and Meade's division was forced to withdraw. Shortly after Hooker took command, he dissolved the Grand Division system and Meade was named commander of the Fifth Corps. They did not see much action at Chancellorsville, as Hooker held the 5th in reserve. Meade was also one of the more vocal corps commanders in favor of attacking when Hooker posed a question to his generals. He had a reputation for being a bit irascible, and though the characterization is sometimes overstated in Civil War literature, it wasn't necessarily unearned. Although this moniker was applied to Meade in the years after the war, the nickname most associated with him was the Goggled-Eyed Snapping Turtle. In addition to his short temper, Meade wasn't the most gregarious of fellows. His camp was not exactly comparable to Hooker's, but while he wasn't exactly a popular general, he did maintain several intimate friendships with a few of his fellow generals, particularly Reynolds and Hancock. The letters between Meade and his wife Margareta show that he was a loving, devoted husband, and he was also close to his son, also named George, who served as an officer on his staff during the war. Before Chancellorsville, his relationship with Hooker had been cordial, but things broke down in the wake of the defeat. Meade was not without political connections, but he did exemplify the model of the professional soldier. Backroom politicking was not his forte. Public relations problems plagued him during the war, as he never courted reporters and was disdainful of the press. In a letter he once wrote, quote, You are mistaken in supposing I am indifferent to public opinion, though it is true I have great contempt for the way it is manufactured and directed in this country, unquote. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake. 
Probably my favorite characterization of Meade came from the famed landscape architect and designer of New York Central Park, Frederick Law Olmsted, who described Meade as having a, quote, most soldierly and veteran-like appearance, a grave and stern countenance, somewhat oriental in its dignified expression, yet American in its racehorse gauntness. He is simple, direct, deliberate, and thoughtful in his manner of speech and general address. He is a gentleman and an old soldier, unquote. People don't use that kind of descriptive language anymore. He looks like an oriental American racehorse. Brilliant. The Fifth Corps went through a few changes following Chancellorsville. Between May 6th and July 1st, all three division commanders would either be transferred, promoted, or absent due to illness. The 1st Division Commander, Brigadier General Charles Griffin, took sick leave and was replaced by Brigadier General James Barnes, who at 61 was the second oldest general in the entire army. The 2nd Division was commanded by the dependable but unremarkable Major General George Sykes. What was notable about Sykes' division was that two of the brigades, led respectively by Colonels Hannibal Day and Sidney Burbank, were not made up of state volunteer regiments but regular army, the only such units in the Army of the Potomac. Now on to the 6th Corps which was the largest in the Army of the Potomac despite losing 8,000 soldiers from casualties and expiring enlistments. Its commander was Major General John Sedgwick, endearingly called Uncle John by his troops. Sedgwick grew up in Connecticut and became a teacher for two years before entering West Point, where he graduated in 1837. He was a veteran of the Seminole War, Mexican War, Utah-Mormon War, and various other Indian Wars. In the early months of the Civil War, he missed much of the action as he came down with cholera and spent weeks recovering. When he was well enough, he assumed command of a brigade before quickly being promoted to division command by the time of the Peninsula Campaign. He was seriously wounded at the Battle of Antietam and subsequently missed the action at Fredericksburg. Eventually, when he returned to the Army, he was assigned to command of the Sixth Corps, which he led into the Battle of Chancellorsville. The 6th Corps was actually not part of the main thrust of Hooker's army, and instead was placed at Fredericksburg, where he held a Confederate division under Jubal Early in place. They drove Early from the same heights that the army had failed to take last December, but the advance was checked by the rebel 2nd Corps at the Battle of Salem Church on May 3rd and 4th, and subsequently withdrew across the Rappahannock. Sedgwick was well-liked within the Army of the Potomac. A staff officer wrote that, quote, from the commander to the lowest private, he had no enemy in the army, unquote. On May 7th, Sedgwick was the third highest ranking corps commander in the army, behind General Couch and General Henry Slocum, and was at least considered on a short list to replace Hooker. He was approached at Falmouth in regard to his opinion on the state of the army and his interest in taking command. Later, in a letter to his sister, he wrote, quote, I think I could have had it if I had said the word, but nothing could induce me to take it, unquote. While Sedgwick was an experienced commander and highly regarded by most of his peers, he also knew his limitations. He was reliable enough to follow direct instructions, but struggled with discretionary orders and lacked the imagination and skill for army command. Changes were made to the 6th Corps after the Chancellorsville campaign. Previously, it had three regular divisions and one light division, but the attrition of the campaign led to the dissolution of the light division. Units were moved into the other three existing ones. The 1st Division Commander, Brigadier General William H.T. Brooks, was replaced by Brigadier General Horatio G. Wright. The 2nd Division was led by Brigadier General Albion P. Howe, a rare supporter of Hooker who was one of the few generals that didn't get along well with Sedgwick. The 3rd was commanded by Brigadier General John Newton. Newton had been promoted to Major General back in March, but his appointment was never confirmed by Congress and eventually expired. Though not a brilliant tactician, he was highly regarded as an engineer, having finished second in his class at West Point in 1842 and later taught engineering at the academy. The last two Federal Army Corps, the 11th and 12th, were sometimes described as the orphans of the Army of the Potomac. Both were created early in the war and served in western Virginia under Generals Franz Siegel and then later Nathaniel Banks. When the new Federal Army of Virginia was organized in the summer of 1862 under Major General John Pope, the two corps were assigned to it as the 1st and 2nd Corps of that army. But after the loss at Second Bull Run, the Army of Virginia was dissolved and its units were mostly integrated into the existing Army of the Potomac. Thus, the 11th and 12th Corps were created. The 11th Corps was an interesting unit, as it was made up in large part by foreign-born soldiers and officers, primarily Germans. At the Battle of Chancellorsville, it was led by one of the youngest corps commanders in the Army, Major General Oliver Otis Howard. Howard was born in Maine in 1830 and graduated from Bowdoin College in 1850 at the age of 19. He subsequently attended West Point, where he finished fourth in his class of 1854. His age prevented him from fighting in Mexico and had limited combat experience before the war, though he did serve in Florida during the Third Seminole War. 
Howard became very religious during the 1850s, to the point where he considered leaving the army to join the clergy. During the Civil War, he earned the nickname, the Christian General. He was assigned command of a main regiment early in the war, and led a brigade at the First Battle of Bull Run. Severe wounds during the Battle of Seven Pines forced him to have his right arm amputated, but he returned in the late summer to lead a division at Antietam. Howard was dismayed when his junior in rank, Dan Sickles, was promoted to Corps Command over him in the winter of 1863. The situation was remedied when the commander of the 11th Corps, the Prussian Major General Franz Siegel, resigned his command to the disappointment of his mostly German-speaking soldiers. The English-speaking, heavily religious general was immediately unpopular with a large portion of the troops under his command. During the evening of May 2nd, the 11th Corps was positioned at the extreme right of the Federal Army. Its position was in the air, meaning it was at the end of the line in an unfortified position, unanchored to any body of water or other natural barrier. At 6 p.m., as the Federal soldiers were enjoying their dinner, Stonewall Jackson's 2nd Corps emerged from the woods and smashed into Howard's unprepared soldiers. Though there were some attempts at an organized defense, many of the soldiers threw down their dinner plates and broke into a frenzied run. The rout of the 11th Corps badly hurt the reputation, which was already of pretty low estimation, due to the prejudiced view held by many American-born soldiers towards the Germans. In a letter to his mother, John C. Gray wrote that they had, quote, run away several times. The Germans certainly have a natural gift, which makes them march well and hold themselves in a soldierly manner." Unquote. Brigadier General Francis E. Barlow, commander of one of the few non-German brigades in the 11th Corps, admitted that he was prejudiced against the Dutchmen, but after Chancellorsville wrote to his family that, quote, some of the Yankee regiments behaved just as badly, unquote. Though later in that year, he said to a friend, quote, but these Dutch won't fight. Their officers say so, and they say so themselves, and they will ruin with all with whom they come in contact, unquote. During Hooker's Council of War, Howard held the minority opinion that the army shouldn't attack the Confederates. After the battle, Howard became one of the main scapegoats used by Joseph Hooker to explain the disaster. Howard's corps had performed poorly when put to the test, but it's hard to imagine even crack troops doing much better under the circumstances. Hooker made the mistake of throwing Howard under the bus, alienating one of the few corps commanders that he had appointed to the position in the process. Fortunately for the Corps, it didn't lose many regiments to two-year enlistments, but it had suffered significant casualties and was already undersized. Commander of the 1st Division, Brigadier General Charles Devens, Jr., was wounded and replaced by the aforementioned General Francis Barlow. Barlow was a Harvard-educated lawyer, but he turned into a solid brigade commander, but was intensely disliked by the Germans, and the feeling was mutual. He further angered them when he arrested the Prussian brigade commander, Colonel Leopold von Gilsa, which led the Germans to accuse him of being a, quote, petty tyrant, unquote. The 2nd Division was led by Brigadier General Adolf von Steinwehr, one of the few non-Prussian Germans. He was from Brunswick. His division was largely made up of American-born soldiers and officers. The 3rd Division was commanded by the Prussian Major General Karl Schurz. Schurz was one of the many Germans who fled after the revolutions of 1848. He'd worked as a journalist and served in the Revolutionary Army, but when the army was defeated, he managed to escape and eventually wound up in the United States in 1852. He settled in Wisconsin and became a well-known figure within the growing German-American community, many of whom were fellow 48ers, the name given to the revolutionary immigres. He got involved in politics, joining the Republican Party, and ran for office unsuccessfully. In 1861, he was named the U.S. Ambassador to Spain by the Lincoln administration, but he lobbied the president to appoint him to a field command in the army and was commissioned as a brigadier general in April of 1862. He was highly popular amongst the German troops, many of whom wished for him to replace Howard as corps commander. General Barlow also intimated that Schurz had ambitions to overtake Howard, which is possible, but Schurz certainly had little regard for his superior. Now we're on to the last Federal Army Corps, the 12th, commanded by Major General Henry Warner Slocum. At 35 years old, he was the second youngest of all the Corps commanders, only Howard was younger. Slocum grew up in a small hamlet in central New York, the sixth of 11 children. At the age of 16, he earned a teaching license and worked as a teacher for five years before attending the U.S. Military Academy, where he excelled academically. He tutored his roommate Phil Sheridan in mathematics. He finished seventh in the class of 1852 and served in the Third Seminole War as an artilleryman. He didn't remain in the Army for long, resigning his commission in 1856. At the end of his army career, he studied law, and in 1858 was admitted to the bar. Like Sickles, he had a minor political career in New York, he served in the state assembly as a Democrat, and was an officer in the state militia unit. At the first battle of Bull Run, he led a New York infantry regiment and was badly wounded. After recovering, he was named a brigade commander, which he led during the early part of the Peninsula Campaign, but was soon bumped up to division command. He missed the Second Battle of Bull Run, as his division was held at the capital, but he earned praise from his superiors at the Battle of South Mountain. 
After seeing little action at Antietam, he was promoted to command of the 12th Corps, which, like the 11th Corps, was not originally part of the army, but unlike the 11th, did not suffer from anti-foreign bigotry. The 12th was absent at Fredericksburg, but fought well at Chancellorsville. Slocum pushed to attack the Confederates and was among the many who lost faith in Hooker when he refused to do so. The Corps lost an entire brigade from expired enlistments after the battle, but in June would be reinforced with a brigade that was stationed in Washington. Slocum was thought of as a solid and dependable Corps commander, but was neither aggressive nor as brilliant as his rapid rise at a young age might suggest. If I were going to rank all of the Corps commanders, I think he'd fall probably smack dab in the middle. Slocum's two divisions were led by Brigadier Generals Alpheus S. Williams and John W. Geary. Neither were professional soldiers, but had good reputations. Williams was 17 years older than Slocum and was a Yale Law School graduate. He worked as a lawyer, judge, and newspaper editor in Michigan. During the Mexican War, he was commissioned as an officer, but arrived too late to see any action. He'd been in command of his division since the spring of 1862, and was thought of as one of the better generals at that rate. Geary was an imposing figure at 6'6 six six and 260 pounds with a giant full beard. Like Williams, he was a lawyer by trade but entered politics in the 1850s. He was elected the first mayor of San Francisco and a governor of the Kansas Territory. Also, like Williams, he was commissioned as an officer in the Mexican War, but did see combat. He led his division for about a year now and saw heavy fighting at Chancellorsville. <laughs> Now that we've talked about the infantry of both armies, I want to take some time to talk about the artillery branch. First thing I'll say about Civil War artillery is that it wasn't nearly as deadly as you might imagine. Like the small arms carried by infantry, artillery went through some technological innovations in the mid-19th century, but it didn't really increase the deadliness of the long arm of the army. During a battle, your odds of being killed by artillery were extremely low. Only about 5% of battlefield deaths were caused by cannon fire, compared to about 90% of KIAs coming from musket fire. Compare that to World War I, where 60% of soldiers were killed by artillery fire. For one, Civil War artillery was only effective if the gunners could see their targets. Although the artillery was the most technical and mathematical of all of the army branches, gun crews still needed to use the sights of the cannon to fire accurately, but once the battlefield was covered in clouds of black powder smoke, it became difficult for artillerymen to see what they were shooting and determine the effectiveness of their fire. The real power of artillery at long range was psychological. The noise, concussion, and randomness of long range artillery took a toll on the nerves of soldiers. Even if the odds of being killed by a cannon shot from long distance was low, it could happen at any moment. Artillery, however, was deadly at close range when canister rounds were fired at incoming infantry. Canister shot is a round filled with shrapnel, usually lead balls or other bits of metal, that when fired spread out in a wide pattern. It essentially functions as a giant shotgun that would rip apart anything within close proximity. The most basic artillery unit was the battery, which in the Army of the Potomac consisted of six guns of the same type. Confederate batteries had four or six, and were often made up of different types of guns. Each gun had a crew of roughly eight men who loaded and fired it, as well as four additional men that were responsible for handling the horse team that carried the cannons. There were three types of field artillery used in the Civil War, smoothbore, rifled, and howitzers. One of the most common guns used by both armies was the 12-pounder Napoleon, a smoothbore cannon that could fire a 12-pound solid shot, exploding shell, or canister shot. The Napoleon was invented in France in 1853 and named after then-Emperor Napoleon III. It was highly regarded by both armies for its versatility and size, small enough to be carried by a team of four to six horses, but large enough to do effective damage to the enemy. At short to medium range, it was the best cannon to use. The most popular rifled gun was the three-inch ordnance rifle. Though not as powerful in short-range situations as the Napoleon, with a three-inch rifled bore, it was much better for long-range firing as it could launch a nine-and-a-half-pound round accurately at a distance of about 1,800 yards, 400 yards longer than the smoothbore Napoleon. In the Gettysburg Campaign, the Union had no howitzers, but the Confederates brought about two dozen 12-pounder howitzers and two 24-pounders. Howitzers specialized in firing rounds in a high arc, which made them useful in attacks against fortifications or in a siege, but less so in an open battle. 
The Confederates also brought two British-made Whitworth rifles, breech-loading cannons, most guns were muzzle loaders, uh, and they were the most modern guns used by either side. Despite the Whitworths, the Army of the Potomac had a superiority in the number and quality of artillery. After both armies refitted in late May and early June, the Federals had 360 to the Confederates' estimated 250 artillery pieces. Though the Rebels had made great strides over the past two years in terms of arms manufacturing, they were always at a disadvantage to their northern counterparts. A great deal of their artillery was captured in battle or imported from Britain. Another big issue was the quality of fuses used for explosive shells, which were designed to burst over the heads of enemy troops a few seconds after it was fired from the gun. Fuses manufactured in southern ordnance laboratories were inferior to northern-made ones, and often exploded earlier than expected. Rebel gunners had grown accustomed to this and adjusted as best they could, but on March 13th, an accidental explosion occurred at the laboratory at Browns Island in Richmond, which killed 50 mostly women laborers, and put the lab out of commission for several weeks. It's alleged by some historians that to make up for the shortage in artillery shell fuses, arsenals in South Carolina and Alabama were forced to make up the deficit, which made it even more difficult for Confederate gunners to time the explosions correctly. Now, back to the organization of the artillery. Early in the war, both armies managed their artillery poorly, assigning batteries to individual brigades, which made it difficult for field commanders to properly concentrate artillery when necessary. General Lee made changes to the organization of artillery in the Army of Northern Virginia after the Peninsula Campaign. Each division would be assigned a battalion of artillery, usually two to five batteries. The excess batteries were grouped into an artillery reserve, commanded by Brigadier General William Pendleton, a West Pointer and former U.S. Army officer turned Episcopal priest. When Lee took command of the Army, he wished to remove Parson Pendleton from command, as it was widely believed within the Army he was unfit for duty. Longstreet's Chief of Staff, Moxley Sorrell, wrote that Pendleton was, quote, a well-meaning man without qualities for the high post he claimed, unquote. But unfortunately, Pendleton was a close friend to President Davis, and nepotism won the day. To work around this barrier, Lee slowly shrank Pendleton's command until it was completely gone after Chancellorsville. The reserve battalions were split between the three corps commanders for the upcoming campaign, and Pendleton was assigned the title Chief of Artillery, which was more of an administrative or advisory position. Arguably the most talented of the Confederate artillerymen was Colonel Edward Porter Alexander. Alexander turned 28 on May 26, 1863, and was seen as a rising star in the artillery branch. At Chancellorsville, he was assigned command of a battalion in the artillery reserve of the First Corps. Additionally, Alexander was one of the more important ex-Confederate memoirists. His two postbellum writings, Military Memoirs of a Confederate and Fighting for the Confederacy, are seen as some of the most trustworthy accounts as they weren't tainted with lost cause propaganda. When General Hooker took command of the Army of the Potomac in January, the artillery was largely modeled in the same way as the Army of Northern Virginia had theirs. When Hooker restructured the Army, he made the unfortunate decision of lessening the strength of the artillery reserve and in the process relegated the Chief of Artillery, Brigadier General Henry Hunt, to an advisory role. Unlike his rebel counterpart, William Pendleton, Hunt was one of the more competent officers in the Army and seen by many as a brilliant artillerist. This move proved to be a disaster at Chancellorsville, so after the battle, without acknowledging his mistake, Hooker gave an order that reorganized the artillery batteries into brigades that were assigned to each corps. The artillery reserve was enlarged, and General Hunt was given a more direct role over its usage, which would give it another advantage over the Confederates in the upcoming campaign. Alright, so that's enough about artillery. Let's get back to the ongoing leadership crisis in the Army of the Potomac. One of the most vocal opponents of Hooker was General Darius Nash Couch, who made it publicly known that he would no longer serve under him and suggested General Meade as a suitable replacement. Shortly after, the three most senior corps commanders, Generals Couch, Slocum, and Sedgwick, all told Meade that they would be willing to serve under him. Meade squashed the idea, but all sorts of rumors were in the air. Hooker angrily confronted Meade about his alleged ambitions of superseding him, but Meade made it clear that while he'd spoken frankly to several people about the possibility, he was not trying to undermine Hooker's authority. At the end of the heated meeting, the two came to an understanding, but the relationship seemed to be damaged beyond repair. More rumors were told to Hooker that two more generals, Brigadier General David Burney, and Brigadier General George Stoneman were conspiring to have Hooker sacked. Bernie retained his job, but Stoneman, who was the Cavalry Corps commander, had already been made a scapegoat for the Army's defeat after his cavalry failed in its primary objective, cutting off Lee's line of communications during the Chancellorsville campaign. Already with a giant target on his back, the rumors of his dissension led Hooker to remove him from command. Additionally, Stoneman suffered from hemorrhoids, not a great affliction for a cavalry commander, which provided Hooker with a convenient excuse to cloak the firing as a temporary medical leave of absence. 
On June 2nd, General John Reynolds met with President Lincoln in Washington, where he was allegedly offered command of the army. Reynolds was a strong advocate of sacking Hooker, but he would not accept the offer under just any old conditions. Reynolds was a professional soldier, and he had seen several other generals be hampered down by civilian leaders. From conversations with other officers afterward, it seems that Reynolds told the president he'd be willing to take command if he was given free reign of the army. The president, Secretary of War Stanton, and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck would have no say in the strategy or handling of the Army of the Potomac. It was an offer that Lincoln refused. Though he wanted to replace Hooker, he was unwilling to just give complete control to a general with little proven track record. John Reynolds was no Cincinnatus. Despite the many cries for Hooker to be fired, the Lincoln administration would continue to deal with him for the time being. But what was the plan now? With his army slowly shrinking, Hooker had no immediate plans to retake the offensive, and the president was content to allow him to just sit tight. Another campaign could bring success, but it seemed that there was a high likelihood of failure, which Lincoln, Stanton, and Halleck agreed wasn't worth the risk. For now, the Army of the Potomac was to hold its position on the north side of the Rappahannock River and watch for signs of activity coming from Lee's army. Speaking of which, let's get back to the south side of the Rappahannock and check on Lee and his rebels. Since the failure of the Maryland campaign at the end of the previous summer, General Lee had been itching to go back on the offensive once again and launch a raid into northern soil. As early as January, he began preparations for this prospective operation. He had staff officers gather information to draw detailed maps of the region he intended to move into, the Cumberland Valley and the surrounding areas of Maryland and Pennsylvania. Lee hoped to begin the operation in late spring, barring an anticipated federal offensive, but as we know, this was ultimately thwarted when Hooker's army crossed the Rappahannock. While Hooker was inactive in the weeks after the battle, Lee did not expect the Army of the Potomac to just sit there forever, so he quickly went back to the drawing board, hoping to beat Hooker to the punch. General James Longstreet, Lee's top lieutenant, had returned from the south side of Virginia just as the fighting at Chancellorsville was winding down. On May 9th, Lee and Longstreet met for the first time to discuss strategy and the possibilities of a new campaign. While Lee was staunchly in favor of using the Army of Northern Virginia to invade federal territory, Longstreet was part of a group of army officers and civilian politicians that were referred to as the Western Concentration Bloc. Along with other high-ranking generals like Joseph Johnston and Gustave Tatant Beauregard, Longstreet believed that the situation in the East had effectively reached a stalemate. The size of the armies, combined with the close proximity of the two capitals and the geography of central northern Virginia, limited the movement of both armies. Neither side could gain a significant advantage with the current arrangement. Longstreet advocated to Lee that he should take the two divisions that he had just returned from Suffolk with and move by rail to reinforce General Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee. General Johnson would similarly travel from Mississippi, and the combined forces would first crush General William Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland, then afterwards move into Kentucky and Ohio. Their occupation of northern soil would force General Ulysses S. Grant to divert troops from Mississippi, and perhaps force him to give up on his Vicksburg campaign altogether. Sounds great, right? Well, Lee did agree on one thing. They couldn't just continue to sit where they were, and that an offensive campaign was the best option. But Lee was not a supporter of Western concentration. Lee and Longstreet had differing opinions on the use of interior lines. Western concentration bloc advocates believe that the various Confederate armies should shift troops from the different theaters using their shorter railroad connections. In this instance, the rail lines between Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee could be utilized to shift Longstreet's Corps west. While Lee understood the importance of interior lines, he disagreed with the assertion that the Confederates had a decided advantage because of the inferiority of southern railroads, which nullified whatever advantage they had in distance. He also thought at this point, it was too late to plan a major offensive campaign on the scale Longstreet imagined. He had the largest Confederate army, and he had the troops now. Plus, how could you trust Bragg and Johnston? Neither had proven to be effective offensive leaders. No, it was the Army of Northern Virginia that would move north. With that issue settled, Lee and Longstreet continued to discuss plans until May 11th. According to various accounts from Longstreet after the Gettysburg campaign, he and the army commander had come to at least some sort of understanding of what the operational and tactical strategy would be. The upcoming campaign would be offensive in nature. The army would leave its defensive positions along the Rappahannock, first moving west and then turning north, where it would march through the gaps of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Heading down the Shenandoah Valley, they would cross the Potomac River into Maryland and then Pennsylvania. The primary objective of the campaign was to give relief to the areas of Virginia surrounding Richmond, which had been perpetually occupied since the summer of 1861. Prior to the war, Richmond was the largest city in Virginia and third largest in the Confederacy with a population of just under 40,000. 
When the seat of the Confederate government was moved from Montgomery, Alabama to the new capital, Richmond exploded in population, more than doubling in size during the war. The combined total number of both the Army of Potomac and Northern Virginia numbered anywhere from 100,000 to 200,000. That doesn't even include the tens of thousands of horses and other draft animals needed to move equipment. Each army was like a mobile city, and I mean that literally. Based on the 1860 U.S. Census, the Army of the Potomac was roughly the same size as the ninth largest U.S. city, Chicago, Illinois, and the Army of Northern Virginia was roughly the same size as the 11th largest city, Newark, New Jersey. Talk about history here, AJ. Your family's history. Newark's history. Oh, who gives a shit about Newark? I'm making a point. That would be like today if the entire populations of both Dallas, Texas, and Jacksonville, Florida just packed up and moved into areas that had little to no infrastructure you can imagine the devastation that might follow. And as previously discussed in this episode, a constant stream of supplies was necessary to keep these forces fit for duty, and this was often done at the expense of poorer residents, white and black. Simply put, many Richmonders were starving. Rising inflation of Confederate currency, resource scarcity, hoarding from merchants, military occupation, and a harsh winter combined all came to a head in April of 1863, when a mob of mostly working-class women marched through the streets of the capital demanding food and economic relief. Richmond's mayor and President Davis himself went out to calm the rioters, but only the threat of violence sent them home. Of the hundreds of rioters, dozens were arrested in the days after the uprising. Confederate Secretary of War James Seddon lobbied Richmond newspapers not to report the event, but word did get out, and it wasn't the only incident of its kind during the war. The Richmond bread riot was fresh on Lee's mind when planning the upcoming operation. If Lee's army moved out of Virginia, Hooker's army was sure to follow, which would give the region desperately needed relief. Military operations are ideal in the summer months, as the weather conditions are generally drier, which makes it logistically possible for the armies to move. Summer also happens to be the heart of the planting season, so it would give farmers a chance to plant crops and hopefully have a successful harvest come fall. The grass would regrow, which would provide more forage for the horses. And just as important, the rebels could live off the fat of the land in Pennsylvania indefinitely. The army would span out through the Cumberland Valley, requisitioning food and material from the locals that included beef, pork, sugar, salt, coffee, whiskey, medicine, saddles, bridles, metal tools, shoes, pants, jackets, hats, horses, mules, gold, and northern paper currency. Not only would the rebels be able to feed themselves for potentially the entire summer on the Yankees' dime, by doing so they would make them feel the deprivation that many southern whites had felt for the past two years. This demoralization would be perfect fodder for anti-war Democrats, known as Copperheads, to use against the Lincoln administration, and could potentially mean a change in power in the election the following year. In the short term, President Lincoln and Secretary Stanton couldn't allow the largest Confederate army to just march roughshod over the Pennsylvania countryside. Lee hoped that Lincoln, under pressure from the state officials in Pennsylvania, would shift troops from the other theaters of war, preferably from General Grant's Army of the Tennessee. A big question to ask is whether or not Lee planned to fight a major battle on northern soil. Lee left that open-ended, as he did expect the Army of the Potomac to follow them across the Mason-Dixon line, but did not have a particular place in mind where they would meet, though his then-military secretary, Colonel A.L. Long, claimed that Lee did anticipate the possibility of fighting a battle somewhere in the vicinity of Chambersburg, York, or Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. But from the accounts of those close to Lee, it did seem clear that he did not necessarily expect to fight a battle, and wouldn't seek one, he would fight one under favorable circumstances. He was concerned about moving into northern territory and abandoning his supply line, which he did not want to risk getting totally cut off from. During Lee and Longstreet's discussions, Longstreet made it clearly known that while he did favor an offensive campaign, they should remain on the tactical defensive. This might be accomplished by threatening a major city like Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Baltimore, or even Washington, D.C. Hooker, under pressure from the president, would surely be a force to attack them on ground of their choosing, which could lead to another Fredericksburg or Second Manassas. The exact words of their conversation were not recorded, and it was only Longstreet who gave his account of the mid-May discussions. Contemporaries and historians have generally discounted many of Longstreet's claims about the Gettysburg campaign because he was too self-serving and inconsistent in his version of events. But Longstreet largely maintained the same story, with only minor variations in his verbiage throughout the years after the battle. In an 1866 interview with William Swinton, Longstreet repeated what he had said in a letter to his uncle in late July, but added that Lee had, quote, expressly 
expressly promised, unquote, not to take the tactical offensive. It was those two words, expressly promised, that Longstreet's post-war enemies and subsequent historians have unfortunately focused on. After the war, Lee was asked if he ever made such a promise to his subordinate, which he denied as absurd, but did not contradict any of Longstreet's other claims. So at least to Longstreet, the issue of strategy in the upcoming campaign was settled. They would move into enemy territory and not bring about a general engagement with the Army of the Potomac unless it was on favorable terms. On May 15th, General Lee arrived in Richmond to meet with President Davis and Secretary of War Seddon. The War Department clerk, John B. Jones, recorded in his diary that, quote, Lee looked thinner and a little pale. Subsequently, he and the Secretary of War were long closeted with the President. Unquote. Jones's comment about Lee's appearance was an astute observation as the Army commander had been in poor health since the spring. He was likely suffering from angina, and many historians allege he experienced a heart attack in March or April. The May 15th Richmond Conference was held behind closed doors, and the content of the conversation was unrecorded. The conference was brought about by the alarming news coming out of Mississippi. General John C. Pemberton was sounding off warning bells that his army was in danger of being cut off, and he was in desperate need of reinforcements. General Johnston, commander of the Relief Army formed to save Pemberton, telegraphed a message to the president on May 13th that said he was too late and subsequently abandoned Jackson, Mississippi. Secretary Seddon, a Western Concentration Bloc advocate, had made it known that he wished to send General George Pickett's division to Mississippi to reinforce Pemberton. Clearly, on May 15th, Lee argued against Seddon's position as it was too little too late. Ultimately, Lee was right because the following day, Grant's Army of the Tennessee defeated Pemberton's forces at the Battle of Champion Hill. On May 17th, Pemberton was forced to retreat to the stronghold of Vicksburg after their last escape route over the Big Black River Bridge was captured by the Federals. Vicksburg's defenses were strong enough for it to be called the Gibraltar of the Mississippi, but now that the Union had besieged the city, it was only a matter of time before it fell to unconditional surrender grant. Back on May 15th at the Richmond Conference, President Davis was in the middle of Seddon and Lee. He was essentially offered two choices, immediately send reinforcements to relieve Pemberton and Mississippi, or reinforce the Army of Northern Virginia for Lee's proposed Pennsylvania operation. Ultimately, it was the latter course that was chosen, though several questions seemed to have been left unanswered. How many troops would Lee be taking? Where were they going? How long would this raid last? During the Richmond Conference, Lee either misled Davis and Seddon or miscommunicated his plans. Davis wrote to Lee on May 31st, expressing his confusion as to what Lee intended, but the two came to an understanding about the campaign objectives. That still left the issue of how Lee expected to reinforce his diminished army. With Longstreet's two divisions back, the Army of Northern Virginia was about the same size that it had been at the end of April. Lee hoped to siphon troops from a couple of places to restore his army. Back on May 7th, he wrote a letter to President Davis that suggested they should remove troops from the coastal fortifications of North and South Carolina. Those troops were being wasted during the summer months when campaigning was difficult in the Deep South because of mosquito-borne infections. Quote, If they are kept in their present positions in these departments, they will perish of disease. It will be better to order General Beauregard in with all the forces which can be spared and put him in command in Virginia than to keep them there inactive. Unquote. Ideally, these garrison troops would be formed into a new smaller army under the command of General Beauregard, which would then be used to threaten Washington from the south as Lee's army freely moved north. Lee again wrote to Davis in June reiterating this point, but the Confederate president didn't see eye to eye with Lee on the issue. He feared weakening the defenses of any part of the Confederate territory, and also didn't trust General Beauregard to the degree that Lee did, for he clashed with the French Creole general several times in 1861 and 1862. With that out of the question, the other place Lee could get more soldiers from was the troops under the command of his former division commander, General Daniel Harvey Hill. Over the course of the first few months of 1863, Lee allowed four of his brigades to be transferred to Hill's department in northeastern North Carolina, but now he wanted them back and then some, but in typical Lee fashion, did not give Hill direct, concise orders. Mostly due to poor communication, but possibly exacerbated by a latent animosity towards each other, Lee and Hill argued back and forth until President Davis was forced to intervene. Both Hill and the governor of North Carolina did not wish to give up any troops if they could. Hill's solution was to swap his larger, newly organized brigades for some of Lee's smaller veteran brigades that were in need of replenishment. They did actually execute one such exchange, 
Colquitt's shattered Georgia Brigade was replaced by a brigade of North Carolinians led by Brigadier Junius Daniels. But to fill out General Heath's new division in the Third Corps, two more brigades were needed. Ultimately, the veterans from Lee's army weren't returned, and instead Hill sent two large but green brigades. One was led by the writer, scholar, and politician turned general, J. Johnston Pettigrew. The other was a nepotism hire, Brigadier General Joseph R. Davis, the nephew of the Confederate president. In addition to this fresh infantry added to the Army of Northern Virginia, four brigades of cavalry were reassigned to Lee's command as well. Just a little more than a month ago, the rebel army numbered around 60,000 soldiers, but in June the size was increased to an estimated 70 to 75,000. Estimates for the Army of the Potomac varied a little more, but were thought to have been at least 80,000 with a high end of 104,000, probably somewhere in the middle. The Federals still outnumbered the Confederates, but the numbers were a lot closer than they had been before. Though the belief of the vast superiority of Southern soldiers had waned since the beginning of the war, a common refrain amongst white Southerners in 1861 was that one Reb was worth ten Yankees, Lee believed that his army could crush the Federals if the odds were anywhere close to even. So that's where I'm going to leave off for today. On the next episode, we'll finally get into the beginning of the campaign and track the opening moves of both armies, plus two battles, Brandy Station and Winchester. This has been Excuse Me History, I'm Joe Barton. Thanks for listening. My night has seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is mine.